Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. They will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached, even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind, so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you had received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may, may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it, if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. G'day everyone. It's great to have you all here. If you haven't met me, my name's Ken. I'm one of the pastors here at WBC. Um, and as Chris has said, this morning we come to the second last sermon in our series, Glorious Exiles. Most uh, who were here last week would remember um, that we looked again at another of Peter's seemingly impossible combinations, that suffering and blessing go together. Most would assume that blessing and suffering are opposite ends of the spectrum. Um, but you're either suffering or you're blessed. But Peter showed us that suffering can actually lead to blessing. Jesus' own suffering was God's means 
to bring us salvation, the ultimate blessing that we've received or we can receive. Uh, and we were reminded that our suffering, just like Jesus' suffering, can lead to uh, good things. It has a purpose. So when suffering comes in response to us doing good, well, we continue to do good, both in words and in deeds. Tonight, we return again to this idea of Jesus' suffering and ours. So will you join with me uh, in praying and committing this to him? Lord God, we do thank you for the privilege we've got to meet together with others that know you and love you and desire to live for you. Uh, we thank you for revealing yourself to us, giving us your words so that we would know uh, what it means to live for you. Uh, and so we pray tonight that again, uh, as we spend some time thinking through 1 Peter, uh, that you'd give us insights into ourself, give us insights into your word uh, and enable us to uh, be changed so that we would live more like Jesus. We pray this in his name and for his glory. Amen. I don't know if it's your experience, but it is mine that the gap between theory and practice can be quite painful. I'm one of those people who learnt to drive a car in an automatic. That's what my parents had at the time. No, it's not me. Uh, I had a much bigger smile than that when I got my L's. Um, but eventually I got my unrestricted licence and one day my boss at work uh, had a job for me to do that required me going to another store to pick up a bike about 20 kilometres away. Now at the time I didn't have a car, I rode my bike to work, so the only vehicle that was available to do this job was his manual ute. Now no problem, I'd been in cars with other people that had driven a manual uh, and they didn't seem to have any issues at all. I understood perfectly the theory. You, you put the clutch in, put it into gear. As you let out the clutch, you put down the accelerator. What could go, possibly go wrong? Uh, well, I managed to bunny hop the ute out of the driveway of the store where I was working, uh, got out onto the road and managed to get down to this other store without too many times stalling it. Unfortunately, the road back from where I picked up the bike to where I had to go back to was primarily uphill and there were a lot of traffic lights. I can't believe how many traffic lights are on that road. Um, no matter what I did, there came a point where I stalled it one too many times and I just could not restart the ute. I had to push it off the road, uh, park it and lock it, and then I had to run a couple of kilometres back to work to get my boss so that he could go and rescue his own ute. Now, fortunately, the only thing that was hurt by the gap between theory and practice was my pride. Now, as we've worked through 1 Peter, we've heard a lot of different theory. We've learned about our glorious inheritance, about living holy lives, about the privilege that we've received because we follow and trust in Jesus. We've been instructed in submission and our response what it should be when people treat us badly. But it's one thing to know the theory. It's something very different to actually put it into practice. How do we go from knowing what's right to do to actually doing it? What will enable us to live for God instead of living for ourselves? Peter answers this question in four parts uh, in this passage, verses 1 to 2. We live for God because we're done with sin. In verses 3 to 6, we live for God because Jesus will judge self-centred living. 
verses 7 to 11, we live for God because his glory is now our highest priority. And then finally in verses 12 to 19, we live for God because our suffering is actually Jesus' suffering. So beginning with the first point in verses 1 and 2, we live for God because we're done with sin. In these first couple of verses, Peter establishes his theory. He actually goes back on things that he's been talking about in the past. Uh, We must have the same thinking or the same attitude that Jesus had. In chapter 3, verse 18, the previous chapter ended off saying that Jesus suffered to bring us to God. And that's probably the normal way that we think about Jesus sacrificing on our behalf. That's what we've sung about. But here in chapter 4, verse 1, Peter says that Jesus suffered in order to be done with sin, which at first glance may sound a bit strange. I think it should. Peter himself is one of many of the biblical writers who explicitly states in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22, that Jesus never sinned. So what does it mean that only after his suffering that Jesus was done with sin? Well, I think it means that having achieved his objective, sin is dealt with. And I think it's comparable to an exam. When we study for school or for uni or even to get our driver's licence, we spend a lot of time doing all we can to be prepared as much as we can be. Well, some of us spend a lot of time anyway. Um, I don't know anyone who, once they've got their licence, continues to go back onto the website and study the road rules, who continues to log hours of driving experience with their parents. They're done with their study, with their preparation, having achieved what their study was for. And likewise, Jesus is done with sin. His job is completed. The full price for sin has been paid. And so he has nothing more to do with sin. And though there is a huge difference between us and Jesus, we accept Jesus' payment for sin rather than making the payment, we are to have exactly the same attitude that Jesus had. Because Jesus has dealt fully and finally with sin, then we should have nothing more to do with it either. Rather than continuing to submit to our sinful desires, we live the remainder of our lives for the will of God, verse 2. Well, great in theory again, but difficult to put into practice. As objects fall when they're dropped, as things are blown along by the wind, to sin is to do what comes naturally to us. Verse 2 calls it evil human desires. Since Adam and Eve sin, there's an innate longing within all of us to do that which God has said is out of bounds. We live for ourselves rather than living to please God. And in the next section, Peter summarises what a life live, giving in to those desires or fulfilling those desires looks like. And so making the dark reality of sin clear leads into Peter's second point, that we live for God because Jesus will judge self-centred living. Somewhat embarrassingly, Christians know from experience, verse 3 says, what living a life given over to sin looks like. Like a resume listing our extensive experience in this area, Peter says, verse 3, that we have lived long enough already doing these things. The list is probably intended to make us feel embarrassment or perhaps even disgust as these things are discussed. Sexual sin, drunkenness, idolatry. 
And while personally we may not be guilty of all or even any of them, we are all guilty of the underlying principle. Foundational to all of these behaviours is an over-the-top indulgence, a self-centredness given free reign. And that is true of all of us, whether we've been good in the eyes of the world or whether people would judge us as bad. All of us, at one time or another, lived to please ourselves rather than God. God was not on the throne, we were. When we step down off the throne, when we stop living this way, verse 4, the world cannot understand why we would give it up. Convinced that their way of living is right, convinced that this way of living is what's going to give us what we desire. When someone turns their back on that behaviour, they're bamboozled. But it's more than just confusion. Our previous behaviour gave unspoken approval to their present behaviour. And part of living for selfish desires is to turn on anyone who would dare to live for something else. Our living for God exposes the world's sin and that infuriates them. And so the world typically uh, heaps abuse on those who would dare to live by some other standard. Taking the role upon themselves, they declare themselves to be judge and jury, condemning our new lifestyle. But in doing this, they make a terrible mistake because it's their actions, verse 5, that are waiting to be judged. And so Peter presents life as a choice over which judge you're going to choose to please, to live for, to take notice of. The world judges Christians and condemns them for their stubborn refusal to join with them in living for themselves. But the world's authority is limited to observing that, well, that's what everybody does. Jesus, in contrast, stands ready to judge the living and the dead. Peter's way of saying absolutely everybody. No one will escape. The one who rightly has angels, authorities and powers in submission to him. That's how chapter 3 finishes off. That describes Jesus as the judge. And while everyone may sin, it doesn't make sin right. Jesus came to die for sin. And those who continue to live for sin will receive the punishment it deserves. But I don't think that we should read this part of Peter's letter as a, a threat say, oh, you better stop doing this. It's written primarily as a reminder to Christians that judgment is the outcome that we have been rescued from. This is what we would have got if we continued on living that way. All who, accept, uh, sorry, all who have accepted the gospel, living or dead, deserve death. But instead, in its place, we've been granted life. And so in response to that great news, verses 7 to 11, Peter offers his third reason. We live for God because his glory is now our highest priority. As it was back in chapter 1, the certainty of the future determines how we live in the present. Because the end of all things is near, rather than drunkenness, there is sober thinking rather than lust and sexual behaviour in which the self is prioritised. Christians express a deep, sustained love for one another, serving one another in whatever way they can. Rather than homes as the location of wild parties, they're open instead as havens of hospitality. Rather than idolatry, there is thoughtful prayer to God. 
in every single part of our life, we are completely different. Our actions are different. Our words are different. Our motivation is different. Previously, life was all about what we could get for ourselves. But now, the motivation for choosing to live this new way is, verse 11, that God may be praised through Jesus Christ. This is what we live for now. Because he's done this on our behalf, we now live for him. Now, this is no misguided belief that this way of living somehow earns or pays back what Jesus has done on our behalf. We don't want people to praise our good deeds, our good words. Rather, people will say, how amazing is the God who has brought about this change? Living for this new goal is enabled because no longer are we acting and speaking in our own ability. Now we speak God's words. We serve in God's strength, verse 11. There's a change in us, but it's clear that the change is brought about by God. And when God is at work through us, God rightly receives the praise. Peter loves in his letter to remind us of how good things will be in the end. He takes us to the end of all times to think about what it's going to be like, to reflect on our hope, to be reminded of our certain inheritance, to paint the picture of what it'll be like when Jesus' authority is recognised by all. And yet reminded of the greatness of where we're heading, we immediately crash back to earth. In verses 12 to 19, Peter explains that we live for God because our suffering now is Jesus' suffering. In verse 12, the description painful trial or fiery ordeal is clearly not the language of a, a little bit of light-hearted teasing. Peter acknowledges here that the suffering that Christians were going through was both real and severe which seems completely incompatible with the ending that he's just described. It's all glorious. Why is there now suffering? But when Christians suffer for being followers of Jesus, we shouldn't think that it's strange, verse 12. Part of the message that Peter has for Christians is, be aware that your choice to follow Jesus opens up the possibility of even more suffering. One of the most dangerous lies going around today, I think, in the church is called the prosperity gospel. It teaches that your decision to follow Jesus will result in everything in life going smoothly. Jesus will give you all the money you need. He'll restore your health. He'll give you everything that you could possibly want. You've just got to learn to pray the right way. But here in 1 Peter is a clear biblical response, a clear biblical promise that becoming a Christian will most likely lead to increased suffering. Follow Jesus and life will be tougher. You've already got all of the suffering that's just a part of this fallen world. But if you're a follower of Jesus, well, you get bonus suffering. What a great hope we have. But again, we need to understand that this is not an encouragement to just grin and bear it. Rather, verse 13 explains that we can accept suffering as normal because our suffering is actually Jesus' suffering. I think it was the Apostle Paul uh, who had this lesson taught to him most dramatically. When Jesus appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus, Jesus asked him, Paul, Paul, why do you persecute me? Paul's hunting down, trial, and even killing of Christians was not just directed 
at the suffering Christians who experienced Paul's wrath. It was taken by Jesus as crimes perpetrated directly against him. And so verse 13 means that when we suffer for being a follower of Jesus, it is actually Jesus' suffering. Though risen and exalted to the right hand of God, when people persecute Christians, they persecute Jesus. And so we participate in Christ's sufferings. Now we need to be very careful to clarify what is and isn't being said here. This is not saying that our suffering somehow contributes to our salvation, as if we could go through bad things and then we'd earn our salvation. Suffering hard things cannot earn our forgiveness, though many would like to believe it can. There's a fairly famous poem called Final Inspection, in which a soldier appears before God and is questioned about his life. He's died and he's gone up to heaven. He's speaking to God. The soldier acknowledges both the good and the bad things that he did in his life. And at the end, God says to him, Step forward now, you soldier. You've borne your burdens well. Walk peacefully on heaven's streets. You've done your time in hell. And it's nothing but sentimental nonsense. Now, please hear me very carefully. I'm not downplaying the sacrifice that members of our military have made on our behalf. More broadly, lots of bad things happen to lots of people. And they can, and they do endure suffering. But our suffering, no matter how severe, cannot earn us a relationship with God. That was done by Jesus alone, in our place, on the cross. And though Jesus is done with sin, he's clearly not done with suffering. Because we are the body of Christ, when people take aim at us, they end up hitting Jesus. And so more than just not surprised that we suffer, verse 14 repeats the message that we looked at last week, that if we are insulted because of the name of Christ, then we're blessed. Peter's advice is that if we suffer for being Christians, then we should actually rejoice. Which, if you're anything like me, might sound like a pretty impossible task. But it's exactly what the apostles, including Peter, did in Acts chapter 5, verse 41, which says, The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing, rejoicing, because they'd been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. This is no theory, no just idea that Peter's dreamed up. He doesn't want us to put a positive spin on our suffering, to, to find the silver lining to every cloud. He is speaking from experience. And he expects us to be encouraged when non-Christians pick on us because of our faith. Because it's proof that we are being different. Which again is not to say that we should seek out persecution. If suffering leads to Jesus being glorified, some might suggest, so, well, do whatever you can in order to ensure that you suffer. But verse 15 clarifies that suffering for doing bad does not bring about good ending. And so don't get involved in wicked, illegal or immoral behaviour. Murderers and thieves can't complain when they get what their deeds deserve. And I don't think Peter's suggesting that there were Christians in his time that were asking the question, can I please be a Christian murderer? Can I be a Christian criminal? No, he picks such clearly bad behaviour because everyone would have agreed 
that those who do wrong are just getting what their deeds deserve. But when people notice that you're a follower of Jesus and doing good leads to suffering, well, don't be ashamed. Rather, praise God that the way that you live and you speak has been noticed by those around you. Praise God, verse 16, that you bear that name. As Aussies, it's a bit of a tradition that we give each other nicknames. When I was younger, people called me Spock, a Star Trek-based reference to my pointy eyebrows. You'll have to have a look at them later to see. Uh, Nicknames often refer to something that people have noticed that's different about us, that sets us apart from those around us. Acts chapter 11, verse 26, records the first time that the nickname Christians was given to people. It was given as an insult because there was something different about these people that followed Jesus. But we reinterpret the criticism as a compliment. Rather than being a source of embarrassment, people noticing that we are followers of Jesus should give us great joy. Peter reminds us to evaluate things by the right standards, that Christians know that what is taking place now is a further indication that the end is coming. The creator of the universe will not allow things to continue on. It won't allow this rebellion to just go on forever. Judgment, the final declaration of which side you are on, has already begun. As Christians are criticised, even persecuted, it is made clear which side they have chosen to be on. Their willingness to suffer for being a Christian is a good sign of the choice that they've made. And with finality, it will soon become clear whose side everyone is on. Chapter 4, verse 18 quotes Proverbs 11:31, underlining that the world's choice to persecute Christians shows just how bad a judgment they have made. And the conclusion comes in verse 19, repeating the message that we heard last week. If you're suffering according to God's will, then commit yourself into God's care and keep on doing good. God sees what is going on. He sees your suffering and he counts it as his own. So remain committed to the right way of life that you've chosen. Continue to do good, to speak well. Hopefully you'll agree with me. These are four powerful reasons able to transform our lives. They're clarifying. They're motivating. They make it clear why we should live for God rather than continuing to live for ourselves. And yet, if we're not careful, I think that they can still just remain another theory, something that Peter tells us and we don't put into practice. One of my bad habits is biting my nails. I know in theory that I shouldn't do it. Its results are terrible, dirty nails. It's, it's unhealthy. Uh, there is absolutely no good reason in my mind why I would choose to keep biting them. And yet that is exactly what I choose to do. I've tried the, the polish that tastes bad. I've, I've been slapped on my fingers by my mother. Uh, nothing works. And I think our danger tonight is that we can nod in agreement that we should live for God because we're done with sin, because Jesus will judge self-centred living, because his glory is our highest priority and our suffering is Jesus' suffering. 
We nod and agree that these things are true. But then we can go away and continue to allow sin to remain in our lives, to continue to live for ourselves, to be discouraged or become afraid of those who would mock our attempts to live for Jesus. Peter is under no delusion that living for God instead of for ourselves is going to be an easy task. Like a learner driver practicing their driving, I think what Peter gives us here is the thoughts that we need to regularly reflect on, the practices we need to have a go at, put them into practice, no matter how good we are at them right now. The only way that we will change who we live for is when the truth of these things seek sink down deep within us, shape us, as we practice them and they become our new habits. And so I think that Peter's advising us that that we do need to set aside time to regularly reflect on these truths, to clear away wrong thinking and instead be clear-minded, as verse 7 says. Sometimes we read our Bibles, we do our quiet time, looking for something that'll give us a boost, that'll give us something to, to just hang on to for today. But the things that Peter's asking us to do here is the the digging the foundations kind of work. Being willing to honestly ask, am I turning a blind eye to the sin that's in my life? Do we really love one another deeply? Or is it just a show so that others will think highly of us? Is our love sufficient to enable us to cover over the offences of others? Or does it fail when things get tough and People continue to cause offence to us. Christmas, as we've been reminded, is just a few weeks away, a time when we often do have others in our homes. Will we offer hospitality gladly? Or will we complain and grumble, as verse 8 warns us against? Are we secretly given to thinking that a life given to our desires would in practice give us much more happiness than a life lived to serve God? Now, we wouldn't go all the way like verse 3 describes, but we just put up with a little bit of self-interest. Surely we can get away with that, can't we? And while we know the Bible says judgment is coming, in practice, do we really believe that life will just continue on forever and and no one will ever be held accountable for their behaviour? Do we consider joy, uh, sorry, do we consider suffering a cause of joy because Jesus will get the glory? Merely contemplating these things, thinking about them, navel-gazing, some would say, won't change our behaviour. If anything, it'll probably only make us feel guilty. Rather, Peter shows us that if we're going to actually live these things out, then we need to be crying out in recognition of our dependence upon God to bring about this change in us. That's at least a part of the reason that prayer is mentioned by Peter quite a number of times throughout his letter. It is only as the Holy Spirit works in us that we'll be able to turn away from living for self and instead live for God. In the past, we trusted in ourselves. All of our experience and resulting habits were self-dependence. In place of that, we need to become spirit-dependent, which will only be brought about by ongoing submission to God, quantity and quality time spent with him. And if we're going to keep doing this on an ongoing basis in the face of opposition, 
when we do good and people respond to us in bad. It's going to take a sustained commitment to know this is the right thing to do and to keep on doing it. To do it once, many people can manage. But to keep on doing it will require a supernatural transformation. Let's pray, asking that God would enable us to arm ourselves with Jesus' attitude to both sin and suffering. Will you join with me? Lord God, we do thank you for your word uh, that's been given to us, has come down to us through Peter's writing. And Lord, we've been reminded so many times through this letter of the incredibly high standard of living that you expect from your followers. And yet it's not done by us just trying harder, by us thinking about it and realising, I've really got to do that. It'll only happen as you bring about that change in us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would enable us to uh, think carefully about this, that you would enable us to set aside the time that's required to reflect on those things in our lives that are not right, the way of thinking that has become habitual uh, and we're just caught in a trap, uh, caught in a rut of doing things a particular way. I pray that you would uh, give us the bravery to actually ask you by your Holy Spirit to uh, come and evaluate our lives, to point out to us things in us that need to change. Pray, Lord, that you give us your enabling uh, so that this would change from just being theory and become our reality. We pray in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.